What's up, comrades? Welcome to the Left Side of Liberty podcast. I have a very special episode for you guys today. I'll start off with the double video breakdown, as I usually do, but then we're going to have a talk with Mike Shipley. If you don't know who Mike Shipley is, first of all, I feel very, very bad for you. But uh, anyway, uh, Mike Shipley is running for the position of LNC chair for the Libertarian Party. You know how there's the DNC and the RNC, and they have their chairs. Well, Mike is running to be the head of the LNC, or the chair for the LNC, uh, which is the Libertarian Party version of the uh, DNC and RNC. So we'll we'll talk to him uh, later on in the podcast. But for right now, let's do the double video breakdown, shall we? So today, because you know I love... Prager U and I love their uh, really intellectually deep and totally not misleading content. Um, we'll do two Prager U videos today. The first one will be presented by Dennis Prager himself, like uh, last week we, we did uh, a video from him. Uh, but this one is much older. I think it's five years old. But it's still relevant because it gets at uh, something that I like to debunk on this uh, on this podcast a lot. And the second video is PragerU's latest five-minute uh, video. And basically, it's a video defending, you know, so much for small government PragerU. Um, it's defending why we have so many people in prison right now it's it, it's it's defending the prison industrial complex and defending uh keeping all these people who don't deserve to be in cages uh in cages so um like i said yeah you know small government prager you it reminds me real quick of a uh george carlin uh bit where he was talking about the reagan administration and he was saying that basically the Reagan administration, well, first of all, he said, uh, isn't it interesting that, like, the, the far-right fundamentalist Christians that supported Reagan and Marina's administration, he was saying, it's no wonder they're against porn because they're people that you wouldn't want to fuck in the first place. <laughs> so that's an interesting observation by Carlin. But he also said that uh, the government, particularly uh, with the Reagan administration, and it's the, it's the same in most administrations, but Reagan was the president at the time that he did this bit, so uh, he specifically mentioned Reagan, how they want to keep the streets safe. Like They want to keep the streets safe for the business criminals by locking up who they deem to be the criminals on the street. So, um, in other words... They don't want to lock up Wall Street criminals. They don't want to uh, lock up big business people that have done uh, shady business practices. You know, they usually don't do that. They want to lock up um, a bunch of, you know, urban kids selling drugs and but otherwise not harming anybody. Um, now, of course, there's gangs and stuff like that, which do which do do a, a, a pretty good deal of harm to people. But other than that, his point was, it's interesting how you have 
these poor black and poor white people being locked up in prison, but the rich white people, you you know, you let them go free and do whatever they want. And uh, even if it's things that are just as, if not more criminal than what the poor black, brown and white kids are doing. So we're going to take a look at that uh, video as well. Not from Carlin, but from PragerU defending the actions of the police state and the prison industrial complex. But first, let's listen to Dennis Prager. I've done, uh, uh, I've analyzed this video series before, this this series of videos. Dennis Prager a few years ago did a, uh, I guess it would be about five years ago now. He did this video series called Left and Right Differences, basically talking about how he perceives the differences between the left, which, again, in his mind means Democrats, which is hilarious, uh, and the right, which he means Republicans. So it's, it's basically just a, a typical right-wing video and video series, basically the all too predictable, everything the right does is great and everything, quote unquote, the left does is bad, even though as all of us that listen to this podcast, or most of us that listen to this podcast, I should say, know, m- most of us know that that is absolutely untrue, uh, that the Democrats are nowhere near left wing, not even close. You know, the, 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 this reminds me real quick, just one more tangent. This reminds me, and I've told this before, but uh, just in case I have anybody new listening to this episode, I had a teacher. I I majored in political science at uh, at university. I was a creative writing major in community college, but at university I was a uh, political science major. And in one of my classes with a professor that I had a couple times, a, a few times actually, because I liked her a lot, she was from Germany. And she was saying that, you know, Americans don't understand that a lot of political parties in Europe, uh, you know, depending on where you are uh, in Europe, I think she was specifically talking about Central Europe, Scandinavia, those types of places. Uh, What she was saying was a lot of these countries have their most mainstream conservative parties are on some issues way to the left of the Democrats in the United States. So she was basically, because uh, because uh, a kid was asking her about uh, political parties in Europe and ha- how their spectrum is different or, or, or their, their position on the political spectrum is different than ours. And um, uh, I think he specifically asked about labor in the UK, if labor was... Uh, like the Democrats in the United States. And um, uh, she said, uh, she gave the answer that I would have given, which is in some respects, yes, but in a lot of respects, not really, because, you know, the Democrats are pretty far right as far as uh, the so-called Western nations go. It's a pretty far right uh, party, but, you know, as we covered in uh, last episode with Noam Chomsky uh, saying that the the Republicans are just off the spectrum to the right, you know, so 
Uh, you have one party that's pretty far right and then a party that's off the spectrum <laughs> to the right. So um, anyway, uh, the central premise that I... Uh, and this actually has to do with the political spectrum as well and the political compass. Ben Shapiro took a political compass test recently and basically he... Sorry about that. Made a uh, made the same argument that Dennis is going to make here in in his video that what essentially separates the quote unquote left from the quote unquote right is the size of the government that each side wants to be. Like you know, so so oh the the left wants big government, the right wants small government. It's like, no, you idiots. It's like the the difference between the left and the right is how each views hierarchy and power. That's what separates the left from the right. The right believes in a highly rigid structure. Of course, there are some exceptions, but the general thing, the general right wing consensus is we want there to be a rigid hierarchy and we're going to frame anybody that doesn't want a rigid hierarchy as wanting quote unquote big government when in fact we're the ones that uh, want big government we're the ones that want hierarchy we're the ones that want power um, whereas the left which I would consider myself a part of uh, the left wants a flattening of that hierarchy and wants a, uh, a horizontal system as opposed to a vertical system. Let's just put it that way. So you decentralize uh, power and you flatten the hierarchy and it's a more egalitarian society, a more, a more egalitarian way of structuring uh, society and economics and culture and things like that. So anyway... Um, Let's uh, listen to Dennis, and I will casually uh, dismantle his arguments. One of the most important differences between the left and the right is how each regards the role and the size of the government. False. <laughs> the left believes that the state should be the most powerful force in society. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, so we just went through this, but... That is an absolutely false statement. He said the left believes that the government or the state should be the most powerful force in society. No, 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 no. What the left believes in is, again, decentralization of power, not centralization of power. Uh, the, uh, the idea that like Stalin and Mao and Lenin and people like that were leftists is absolutely laughable i mean these guys were incredibly right-wing actually in the way that they struck in the way that they structured society they they weren't right-wing in the sense that they didn't you know hold like traditional values uh, or or uh you know, they, they obviously opposed religion and stuff like that. But as far as, but as far as again, the way society sh should be structured, uh, it was a very, very right-wing 
style of governance that went on again with Stalin, Mao, Lenin, you know, all those guys, Pol Pot, all of them. So anyway, uh, that is an absolutely false statement. The left again wants an egalitarian and de- and decentralized society, and the right, generally speaking, wants a rigid hierarchical society. So Dennis is just wrong there. Many other things, the government should be in control of educating every child. That's partially should true. Should provide all health care. Okay, no, 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 no. See, there's there's different ways to do this, Dennis. I know you don't like nuance if nuance doesn't fit in uh, with your narrative, but um, but the government, the or the left. I'm sorry, the left doesn't. There's not everybody on the left that thinks that um, that government should be in control of all aspects of healthcare. That's absolutely false. There's people that support the UK style system that uh, kind of believe that because uh, in the UK, um, although there is some decentralization, it is a mostly mostly centralized system where technically. Uh, the people that work in the NHS are government employees or they're, they're paid by the government. And uh, there are people like me that, at least as a temporary measure, I do support a universal health care or single-payer type of system, uh, maybe even a public option. Uh, but but um, there's, uh, but there's a, a way of doing a single-payer system that isn't an NHS-style system. It's a system that's that's used more in uh, Canada, France, Australia. You know, these countries have there's there's differences, of course, but they're they're pretty similar in that you have public money going to private institutions, and there's still supplemental private insurance for things like plastic surgery, like cosmetic type of things. So, um, or for things that aren't in the single payer system, like um, vision and dental and things like that, which I think should be a part of single payer. But the point is, is that uh, Dennis is being really, really misleading on purpose. uh, And I think he knows uh, that he's doing that. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, He... Uh, is deliberately leaving out that uh, you can still have private institutions under a single-payer system, uh, but uh, it's paid for mostly through tax dollars. So that's um, what he's leaving out. But again, he doesn't want, for instance, corporate taxes and taxes on the rich to be raised, so he's going to leave that out of it. So anyway... Uh, go on. And should regulate often to the minutest detail how businesses conduct their business. That's not in true. In Germany, that's for instance. That's not true. That is not true. That, that's not true at all. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, like, people in power, no matter if they're a right-wing government or a quote-unquote left government, uh, which again is ridiculous, but if you're in a Republican administration or a Democratic administration... They both want to regulate you to a certain extent. 
So don't give me the, oh, you know, if the Democrats are in charge, uh, they're just going to, you know, heap all these regulations on you and, you know, make things uh, more difficult for you. You know, it's like that's that's incredibly misleading. Both parties do that. So anyway, uh, and then he's going to bring up the, well, uh, you see, Germany, um, uh, the left there in, in Germany uh, legislates that, you know, when stores have to close, it's like, so what? I don't care about Germany. I live in America. Like no, no American, uh, no, but no, no Democrat in America has proposed a bill saying, hmm, let's us, uh, let's have a bill that says us Democrats get to uh, say when stores have to close. It's like, that doesn't happen, Dennis. You're just making shit up as you usually do. The government legislates the time of day stores have to close. In short, there should ideally be no power that competes with government. False. Again, again, the left believes in uh, central or sorry, decentralization of power, not centralization. Uh, the left actively fights against uh, centralization of state and corporate power and people like Dennis Prager present the, uh, present themselves as being the ones that compete uh, or sorry that uh, that fight state uh, at least state power but they have nothing to say about corporate power uh, and uh, because again they benefit from uh, the corporations controlling everything. So, of course, they're not going to speak out against uh, against corporations, at least not too much. So, anyway, carry on. Not parents, not businesses, <laughs> not private schools, not religious institutions, not even the individual human conscience. I love how, again, I, I love how he's saying the Democrats want all these things. He's implying that, that it's the Democrats that want to destroy all these things. It's like the Democrats are in favor of almost every one of those things, except uh, maybe private schools. They're not as uh, insistent on private schools because private schools are incredibly authoritarian institutions. And I don't think education should be like, like a quality education should be based on somebody's ability to pay. That doesn't make you a leftist. That just makes you, you know, a normal human being that wants society to not collapse, you know, and and, and uh, you want to have uh, people that can have a basic level of functioning instead of uh, being at these these terribly underfunded schools. Uh, we, we should increase funding to public to public schools. And yes, private schools can just go away, you know. So um, anyway, uh, carry on. Conservatives, on the other hand, believe the government's role in society should be limited to absolute necessities, such as national defense. <laughs> I love it. So uh, so Prager's like, you know, uh, the left uh, is too... Uh, reliant on big government and then uh, he goes and the right believes in national defense national defense 
is the biggest source of spend of discretionary spending uh, by far. I mean, my God, you talk about big government. Good God. So I love it how when it's something that he likes that involves big government, then he's in favor of it. But if it's something that isn't in his immediate corporate interests that or, or like financial interests to serve his corporate donors and to serve himself, he's uh, he's not for it, you know, because it doesn't help him. So uh, conservatism 101. Anyway, carry on. Being the resource of last resort to help citizens who cannot be helped by family, by community, or by religious and secular charities. Conservatives understand that as governments grow in size and power, the following will inevitably happen. One, there will be ever-increasing amounts of corruption. Power and money breed corruption. I agree. In- I agree, Dennis. Power and money do breed corruption. Uh, but it's funny. He's going to like brush aside in a minute here, in, in, in a second, actually. He's going to brush aside the whole... Uh, the concept of, oh yeah, well, uh, corporations have a lot of power and that can sometimes uh, corrupt them. But uh, but anyway, um, it's when uh, big business gets involved with big government that, that uh, is the real problem. It's like, no, you idiot. They're both problems. Uh, big business and big government are both problems, and that's what the left, the true people on the left, that's what we fight against. So, but again, it benefits Dennis and his donors to uh, to defend big business and go after big government. So he's not going to criticize big business. So anyway. And I like how smug and condescending he is too. Like conservatives understand that uh, as government gets bigger, uh, it becomes more corrupt. As if like leftists don't understand and like Democrats don't understand. It's like, oh yes, the Democrats do understand, which is why they're just as corrupt as the Republicans. Like, like, like you know. And, and again, it's it's the left that fights against these types of people. It's not you know. It's not the Democrats who he's who he's like misrepresenting as the left. But again, as I've said before, Democrats are nowhere near left wing. They're actually pretty far right. So anyway, carry on. Don't you hate buffering? Government will sell government influence for personal and political gain and people outside government will seek to buy influence and favors. In Africa and Latin America, government corruption has been the single biggest factor holding Aha. nations back from progressing. See, he said government corruption. He didn't say big business corruption. And uh, and uh, so, so it's the government that corrupts business. Business does not corrupt government. That's ridiculous. Oh, my God. individual liberty will decline with a few exceptions such as an unrestricted right to abortion individual liberty is less important to the left than to the right (laughs) oh my god oh my god okay i don't even know why i'm bothering to go over this one 
because of you know what I've said uh, before, but I am an absolute supporter of individual liberty and uh, basically the right of people to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And it's interesting because Dennis Prager isn't in favor of drug legalization. He likes he, he's he's fine with alcohol being legal. Uh, he's fine with cigarettes uh, being uh, being legal over you know a certain age. Uh, so that's cool. But um, so so that's an instance where the left is in favor of more freedom uh, than Dennis is. So are you? Uh, now in favor of big government, Dennis Prager? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I also support gun rights. Um, and b uh, believe it or not, I I've said this before, but again, for the new for the newbies, um, I am actually pretty moderate to somewhat s slightly right of center, I guess, on the issue of abortion uh, because... I believe that we should have uh, some restrictions uh, on abortion that may be... I'm in favor of a little bit more restriction than, say, uh, your typical pro-choice uh, advocate is. Although I am personally, uh, in my... Uh, personal life, I'm pro-life, but politically, I do consider myself, relatively speaking, uh, pro-choice because even though I personally object to uh, abortion as a practice, I don't want my personal feelings to get in the way of other people's decisions as long as, again, you're not getting late-term abortions, uh, other than, of course, for absolute medical necessities, like the, the, the life of the mother is in danger or uh, the fetus is going to die anyway or has died anyway, I'm not going to make you carry that to term. Like, that's that's just insane, in my opinion. So I'm pretty moderate uh, on the issue uh, of abortion. So uh, kind of just sent his little... Uh, theory tumbling down there. So uh, anyway, uh, continue, Dennis. This is neither an opinion nor a criticism. It is simple logic. The more control the government has over people's lives, the less liberty people have. That's true, but uh, again, it's the right that wants uh, a more rigid hierarchical system, not the left. So you're wrong, Dennis. Three. Countries with ever-expanding governments will either reduce the size of their government or eventually collapse economically. Every welfare state ultimately becomes a Ponzi scheme, relying on new payers to pay previous payers. And when it runs out of the new payers, the scheme collapses. All the welfare states of the world, including wealthy European countries, are already experiencing this problem to varying degrees. I like how he didn't cite a single specific example because he can't do it. You know why? Because the welfare states in European countries, by and large, are doing pretty well. So uh, he can't say that. Uh, so he 
just has to make these broad, vague generalizations. I love it. Continue. Four, in order to pay for an ever-expanding government, taxes are constantly increased. But at a given level of taxation, the society's wealth producers will either stop working, work less, hire fewer people, or move their business out of the state or out of the country. <laughs> okay. Five. Okay. Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. So, of course, he has to give it, oh, let's just cut taxes. He has to put, uh, slide that in there. Um, just to let you all know, when he talks about cutting taxes, he's not talking about cutting taxes for postal workers or cutting taxes for teachers or cutting taxes for, I don't know, McDonald's workers or whatever. He's not talking about cutting those people's taxes. He's talking about cutting the taxes of, you know, of, of big hedge fund manager, you know, hedge fund CEOs and Wall Street bankers and, 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 uh, and the heads of large multinational corporations. That's what he's talking about. And this whole, oh, you know, if you raise taxes on these these poor corporations, they're going to uh, move out of the state. They're, they're going to hire fewer people. It's like, well, not if you mandate, uh, you know, laws against that. And, and, it, and if they break the rules, they're going to pay stiff penalties for that. You know, like this is how... Uh, these are some of the laws in place uh, in some of the Scandinavian countries, some some European countries uh, to combat uh, that issue. So, Dennis, we empirically know uh, that what you're saying is false. If uh, people in power, politically speaking, have the courage to actually stand up to the people in corporate power. So, anyway. Big government produces big deficits and ever-increasing and ultimately unsustainable debt. I love that. I love that. So, there were a couple PragerU videos. Now, of course, there's a couple others where they, uh, where they go after government bailouts of big business. But uh, in other videos, they have certain presenters that have defended uh, bailing out big business and Wall Street and, and, and things like that. So with PragerU, they're incredibly inconsistent in their messaging. Uh, it's basically just about whatever is politically convenient at any given time. So, and, and that's the case with a lot of right-wing outlets, that they have no real principles, uh, but they just say whatever's uh, convenient for them to say uh, at, at any given time. And that's a case uh, right here uh, of that. And as far as the, uh, but my point with that was Dennis is talking about the debt here. It's like corporate bailouts and constant war and all that. You know, like those things contribute to the debt. But again, Dennis loves those things. So he's not going to speak out against it. Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's so laughable. But anyway, continue. This, too, is only logical. The more money the state hands out, the more money people will demand from the state. 
No recipient of free money has ever said, thank you. I have enough. I love it. They're fear-mongering about like, oh, you know, uh, if people have, uh, if people get on these safety net programs, they'll never get off them. Yeah, like nobody, yeah, like nobody ever gets off of like food stamps if they need to, or nobody gets off social security. Nobody gets off, um, like, uh, SSI. That's what I meant. Uh, nobody gets off WIC. You know, they just stay on those programs forever. What a fantasy. You know, you're going to be a slave to those programs forever. It's like, that's not true, Dennis. And you know, that's not true. Yeah. So, um, uh, so there are plenty of instances where, People that have gone through hard economic times have said, okay, you know, that's enough for me now. I'm, I'm back on my feet again. There are some people, yes, that do mooch off the system, but that's an incredibly low number compared to the number of people that have actually gotten off. So that's just ridiculous. Unless big governments get smaller, they will all eventually collapse under their own weight with terrible true. consequences socially That's true. as well as economically. Six, the bigger the government, the greater the opportunities for doing great evil. The 20th century was the most murderous century in recorded history. And who did all this killing? Big governments. Evil individuals true. without power can do only so much harm. True. But when evil individuals take control of a big government, the amount of harm they can do is essentially unlimited the That's right true. fears big government the left fears big business <laughs> but co i love it i love it uh the democrats don't fear big business dennis and like i said they're not actually the left but that's what he's implying here is the left uh the left doesn't fear uh, the the democrats don't fear big business they love big business almost as much as republicans do so that's absolute nonsense and here he's going to make the classic argument, well, Coca-Cola can uh, come to your uh, house and uh, and like hire, uh, like Coca-Cola can't uh, come to your house and kick your door in and make you do things and blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, technically they can, but they have enough money where they can hire a private police force to do that stuff for them. So your argument is completely invalid, Dennis, but nonetheless, let's hear it anyway. Hold on a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coca-Cola can't break into your house or confiscate your wealth. Bullshit. Only big government can do that. As irresponsible as any big... Yes, but... But big business uses big government in order to do that. It's not like they're, they're separate things. It's like, that's bullshit, man. Business has ever been... It is only big government that can build concentration camps and commit genocide. I love that too. I, I love it. Like, ooh, the, uh, you know, yeah, uh, big businesses, that's a bad thing. So anyway, uh, gloss over that. Uh, it's big government's fault. It's like big government would build concentration camps if corporations told them to do so. I guarantee you that that would be the case. So seven. Big government eats away at the moral character of a nation. <laughs> people no longer take care of other people. After all, they know the government will do that. 
That's why Americans give far more of their money and volunteer far more of their time to charity than do Europeans at the same economic level. I hear this argument all the time from uh, from right wingers, and I'm sure it's true uh, that uh, Europeans uh, give less to charity than Americans. But do you know why that is? Because they don't need to. Because things like healthcare and education uh, and other things like that are paid through uh, are paid for through the ta- through their taxes. So yes, they're taking care of each other. The people's taxes. Pay for other people to get medical treatment. You don't need to have a GoFundMe page for cancer treatment in in Europe. You don't need to have GoFundMe pages and 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 charities for um uh for medical treatment in uh in Europe or uh in other parts of the world as well. It's like the reason why. Uh, Europeans and other parts of the world don't give as much to charity is because they don't need to because they they get services through their tax dollars which is why yes their taxes are raised a little bit but what do you get in return I am so sick of this argument man you can you tell I am so sick of this Ugh. anyway carry on without the belief in an ever expanding government there is no left Without a belief in limited government, there is no right. I'm Dennis Prager. I love that. That's the end of the video. That's a non-point. That, that that's a non-point he just made, and he thinks it's a mic drop. Like, ooh, you know, uh, drop the mic. Without uh, without a belief in uh, expanding government, there is no left. Without a belief in limiting government, there is no right. Mic drop, bitches. <laughs> oh my god, I don't even need to respond to that one. I've beat that horse to death. Uh, already you know why that statement is wrong uh anyway let's move on to PragerU's most recent video um and this is called let's see their most recent five minute video i should say uh this is called uh why are so many americans in prison and it's by some guy from the manhattan institute which is this like super duper far right uh, think tank. And he's like their like crime statistics guy. He's like their, uh, I forget what his exact title is. But anyway, uh, we're going to get to that in a second. All right. So I'll play that uh, video for you guys now. And uh, I will just... Um, I, I won't really interject much in the video because the before I start the video, I want to say something really quick. This video uses out-of-date statistics. He's using 2017 statistics in a 2020 video. Now, I went to the the uh, the source. The, the source is the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And uh, the... The article that he's citing or the report that he's citing uh, is through 2016 and 2017. So these are completely outdated statistics. But I want to use this video to jump uh, as a jumping off point uh, to make a quick broader point, And then you guys will get to hear the uh, interview with Mike Shipley. So let's just uh, hear what this gentleman whose name I forget. It's like Raphael or something like that <laughs> uh, has to say here. 
Our prisons are crowded with people who shouldn't be there, the victims of a racist justice system. This is the popular progressive narrative, but it's wrong in every respect, dangerously wrong. The U.S. does have a very large prison population, not because too many innocent people are incarcerated, but because too many people commit serious, usually violent crimes. With rare exceptions, that's why most people are imprisoned in America. Period. Full stop. Before presenting the facts, let me add these caveats. It's unacceptable that any innocent person is behind bars. Punishment must always fit, not exceed the crime. We should do everything we can to reduce the rates of recidivism, committing more crime after release. And finally, everyone in prison should be treated humanely. But let's not fool... Okay, okay. So already I have an issue. He's talking about, oh, we should find ways to lower recidivism rates. It's like, okay, then you have to reform the prison system because it's been proven that the recidivism rate in this country is out of control using some of the same sources. Uh, if you look at some of the same sources that, that this guy uses to justify uh, keeping those uh, those people uh, in prison, uh, recidivism rates are out of control because our system in this country uh, focuses way too much on punishment and not, uh, not enough on rehabilitation and rehabilitation is what really matters i think in some instances yes there should be a little bit of punishment but i would definitely err more on the side of rehabilitation because at the end of the day these people are human beings and they, they need to be treated with at least some degree of empathy not sympathy no notice i'm not saying sympathy i'm saying empathy um and we need to treat them as if they have worth because they do. I'm sorry. Even the uh, e even the worst criminals have some degree of human worth and they need to be treated as such. That's just my belief. If you disagree with me, fine. But I'm just telling you my personal uh, opinion. Um, and I like how this, this whole video can be defined as, well, prisoners... Uh, should be treated humanely, but so there's there's always a big but with a lot of these PragerU videos, and this is one right here. Like, yeah, you know, uh, the prison population is 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 massive, and uh, you know, prisoners should be treated humanely, and we need to control recidivism rates. But uh, I'm actually not going to propose anything, uh, doing anything new uh, to reform the system. Uh, actually, everything is fine the way it is, and uh, progressives are wrong about this. Like, that's basically this video in a nutshell. But anyway, there's three more minutes, to, actually four more minutes to go, so let's get going. ...tell ourselves that our prisons are full of people who shouldn't be there. That's simply not the case. It is the case. Let's start with those convicted of drug offenses, the source of so much of the mass incarceration myth. While it's true that about half of federal prisoners are incarcerated on... I love it. Big government prager use, like, oh, mass incarceration is a myth. Yeah, so much for big government. Jesus Christ. Um, and with these uh, 
on drug charges, federal inmates constitute only about 12% of the American prison population. He doesn't give Almost citations for any of these statistics. Are in Holy shit, he doesn't give any citations for any of these statistics. So how are you how are we supposed to take you seriously? Later on he cites the Bureau of Justice statistics, like I said, but again, he's using an outdated report that came out in 2019, but uh, contains statistics from 2016 and 2017. So I want to see an updated, uh, the the most up-to-date version of those statistics. Those are out of date and irrelevant to me as far as I'm concerned. So. State facilities, and very few of them, less than 15%, are there for drug-related offenses. Four times that number are behind bars for one of the following serious crimes. Murder, 14%. Rape or sexual assault, 13%. Robbery, 13%, aggravated or simple assault, 11%, and burglary, 9%. In short, violent criminals make up the clear majority of the state prison population. What's more... Okay, uh, and this was the the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, report here. That's where he's getting these statistics. The violent criminals make up the clear majority of the state prison population, and... I'm sure that that's true, but again, he's not addressing the uh, for uh, for the burglary, uh, robbery, um, drug charges. Uh, he's not addressing uh, with these factors, and I guess murder sometimes could play uh, could uh, factor into this as well. He's not addressing the broader systemic issues that lead to those crimes being committed. He's just saying, oh, let's just punish him. You know, he's not interested in addressing the about, you know, why things like robbery and burglary are committed. You know, he, he's just interested in saying, see, look, they committed a robbery. They committed a burglary. They, they committed murder. Um, uh, therefore, they're inherently bad. Uh, lock these people up. So anyway, continue. Or drug offenders who do end up in prison don't actually serve very much time. Almost half are released within a year. The truth is that most criminals probably... I don't probably care. Sp- I honestly don't care. I don't care. I, they shouldn't be serving any time whatsoever because all drugs should be legalized. And to a certain extent regulated. I don't think taxed because I don't want the state uh, to to get tax money from, uh, from drugs. I, I don't think cigarettes and alcohol should be taxed either. Uh, so anyway, carry on spend less time in prison than you think, even for the most violent crimes. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, almost 40% of released state prisoners served less than a year in prison. Even 20% of murderers and nearly 60% of those convicted of rape or sexual assault served less than five years in prison. What explains the short stays? Answer, plea bargaining. I love it. I love it. See, even if uh, the sentences may be uh, still be a little, may still be a little harsh. I mean, uh, I mean, we have plea bargaining, so doesn't that make it a little bit better? I love that. That's the implication. No, it doesn't make it better. Uh, it makes it uh, okay. Excuse me. Sorry about that. It makes it okay for people that that um, uh, deserve to be uh, in prison, but for people that don't deserve to be there, plea bargaining ain't much of a consolation. Sorry, my friend. Most prosecutions never go to court. Instead, a deal is made between the defendant's attorney and the prosecutor to avoid going to trial. 
These negotiations often involve the offender agreeing to plead guilty in exchange for a reduced sentence or dropping or downgrading the most serious charges. <clears throat> As a result, a prisoner's conviction record often understates the crime that landed him behind bars in the first place. For example, an armed burglar who, when arrested, was found to be in possession of illegal drugs might go to prison not for his worst crime, the armed burglary, but for a plea bargain charge of, say, trespass and drug possession. But the media and the activists don't tell us about this rather important detail. The media doesn't tell you about this? Oh my god, yes they do. The activists, maybe not. But again, these are things that require broad systemic critiques and you're not interested in broad system systemic critiques. So, just shut up. <laughs> Instead, all we hear about is the poor fellow who's serving time for selling a small amount of cocaine. This assumes, of course, that the convicted criminal does any time at all. Studies done by the Justice Department show that only about 40% of felony convictions lead to a prison sentence. Yes, many are given probation, sentenced to home confinement, or given credit for time served in pretrial detention. But most of the time, convicted criminals don't go to prison. To be fair, I didn't look up the uh, Department of Justice uh, statistics. I didn't fact check him on that, but I fact checked him, like I said, on the Bureau of Justice statistics that are largely out of date and are just totally insignificant and irrelevant to me. Do we really want even more criminals out on the street? Again, this is this goes back to what George Carlin was saying. It's like the the business criminals uh, want to keep the streets safer by uh, keeping the poor street criminals off the streets. You know, so so you got to make the streets safe for the business criminals. So let's lock up those uh, those street criminals. Uh, so it's still... Uh, but again, a lot of these people are convicted for crimes that shouldn't be crimes. The, the thing that, that he's talking about, well, the media spins it as, oh, he's uh, convicted for selling cocaine. Uh, selling cocaine shouldn't be a crime in the first place, damn it. But again... That he doesn't care about broader systemic critiques. So, anyway. Activists say yes. Scholars at the left-leaning Brennan Center have called for an immediate 40% reduction in the number of inmates. CNN host Van Jones, founder of the Hashtag Cut 50 initiative, tops that. He wants a 50% reduction. But if the activists get their way, the cost would be high and would likely be paid by the most vulnerable. Most crimes are committed by a small fraction of the population who primarily victimize their own communities. Here's an all too common example. In the spring of 2019, two men were charged with the murder of a Chicago woman who was shot while holding her baby. One of the men charged had nine felony convictions, including for a 2004 second degree murder charge. A January 2017 University of Chicago crime lab study found that on. I love it. I love it. He's basically saying, okay, I found this one uh, example of a uh, like this one specific example of a guy who had all these previous convictions and somebody got murdered uh, as a result of him being allowed to go free. So therefore, we need to end it all, man. Yeah, I love it. That's that's not one anecdote is not going to pull on my heartstrings, man. One anecdote isn't going to do it. On average, someone arrested for a homicide or shooting in that city had nearly 12 prior arrests. Almost 20% had more than 20. If we cut prison rolls by 20, 40, or 
It won't be politicians and media celebrities living in gated communities who will pay the price. It will be the law-abiding citizens and underserved neighborhoods struggling to get ahead who will pay. I love it. I love it. So he's making it seem like the people that are advocating for the prisoners to be, uh, the prison population to be cut down are largely elites in politics and media. That's ridiculous. There are people like me who actually care about making, uh, about, you know, improving people's lives and giving them a second chance and giving them an opportunity to redeem themselves and being just showing a basic level of human empathy and compassion. So, ugh, this guy is annoying me so much. But luckily, there's only like 20 seconds left in this video, so let's get through it, shall we? When it comes to debates about criminal justice policy, these people, not criminals, should come first. I'm Rafael Mengual, Deputy Director of Legal Policy at the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. Okay, it's done. <laughs> Thank God. Oh my God, my brain hurts from that. So, uh, again, he's making it seem like it's an elitist position to want to uh, free people that were convicted of, of drug offenses and people that, uh, and, and to rehabilitate people that were murdered, or people that were murderers, sorry, when really it's just a, uh, uh, like I said, an expression of basic human empathy and compassion. So, uh, anyway, uh, that's pretty much all I've got for this uh, particular double video breakdown segment. So, anyway, we will continue uh, in a moment with Mike Shipley. Again, he's running for the LNC chair and uh, the position of LNC chair. And uh, I will be speaking with him. I hope you guys enjoy the interview. And uh, I won't be doing uh, an end greeting at the podcast. So I will just do uh, an end greeting right now. Thank you for listening. And thank you for getting my Facebook page um, past 1,000 likes. Now, if y'all could just donate on my Patreon, that would be great. Patreon.com slash the left side of liberty. That would be a big help. So uh, anyway, enjoy your uh, quarantine <laughs> and uh, the, the rest of your quarantine and enjoy this uh, interview with Mike Shipley and I'll see you next time. All right, folks, I am here with Mike Shipley. Mike, how you doing? Fantastic. How are you? I am doing great. Um, so uh, I just uh, thought I'd start off by... Uh, asking you, how is the uh, campaign for LNC chair going so far? Oh, it's, you know, it's going pretty well. And um, I've been really excited to, it, well, at least up until, um, you know, this giant like pandemic thing happened and convention season was um, completely um, sort of cut short. Um, you know, I was traveling to the different state conventions and really getting a chance to meet um, the delegates and the other members of the state parties. Um, and there was so much like healing there, right? Like, I guess I underestimated the amount of sort of restoration of relationships that needed to be rebuilt after, um, you know, the Libertarian Socialist Caucus was such a kind of 
you know, it was perceived as a very disruptive um, kind of organizing. Um, I guess, you know, for many people, it was a great shock that left libertarian ideas even existed, right? And yeah, those people's yeah. memories of the um, introduction of the caucus into the party are, I guess, or at least they were, um, before I got a chance to meet them on the ground, um, were very kind of dark and maybe resentful, right? There was a lot of sort of lingering um, mistrust. And it was so wonderful to be able to like travel to conventions and meet people because um, just time after time I would shake their hands and their, you know, their demeanor would change and they would like express, you know, their discomfort or whatever it was. And I would explain something and like, there's something humanizing about like physical um, contact that just, um, I don't know, it was beautiful. So um, that has been wonderful. Understood. Understood. That actually is a great segue into uh, one of the questions I had for you. You kind of touched on it a little bit anyway, but um, just in general, um, how have you been treated so far uh, as uh, as a libsock running for an L for a position in the LNC. Well, I guess it, it. I guess it depends how you quantify like treatment, right? Yeah, um, I guess how how have you been received? That's what I meant. Like, how has your reception been? Like the fact that I'm running, like people have been very warm about it. Um, even the people that um, maybe are ideologically still skeptical of, of Alliance um, have approached me after debates or just reached out and been like, I'm glad you're in the race. Um, and you know, I'm really, this party needs this more than I realized, or, yeah. you know, they're really glad, like in a symbolic sense. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like there's still like a reluctance um, because it's not really translating to numerical support. Okay. Um, so there kind of is that, um, which doesn't mean that that's an insurmountable obstacle, but it does mean, at least to me, that there's something institutional or systemic about the disconnect between, like, saying, I'm glad you're in this race, this party needs left libertarians, mm -hmm. and actually falling through and supporting, like, in an affirmative way with their vote. So ah. that's still a real thing. Ah, so it's more of like a... Uh a superficial just being polite like yeah we're glad to have you but when push comes to uh, when push comes to shove we're not actually going to do the work needed to support you that kind of thing right yeah unfortunately yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah um so uh how are your uh your poll numbers i tried to look those up i couldn't find anything on like how you're doing uh in relation to other candidates for your position all right well here i'm gonna put on my tinfoil hat for just a split second okay um i'm not gonna like try to spin these straw polls that happened um because like the institutional layers that i just talked about and they're not just about libertarian socialists but they're also about class supremacy and whether, um, you know, working class, low income people, um, you know, can represent the kind of leadership that um, people sort of acculturated to think about the world in terms of capitalism, mm -hmm. you know, where supposedly wealth equals power and it equals making good choices and poverty supposedly equals bad choices. And mm -hmm. there is like so many layers of 
you know, of that. So I'm not going to try to sweep all of that away because it's real and it is reflected in the numbers. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't even remember the numbers. Okay. Um, other than that, um, like mine were super low and it was kind of embarrassing. Uh. Um, but also, um, a couple of the conventions where I was at, like the people that were handing out the ballots for the uh, straw poll weren't giving them to everybody. Hmm. And I know that not only because people came up to me after the straw poll in California and were like, nobody had to be a ballot. Where did I get my ballot from? And uh, similarly, um, when there was another straw poll in, goodness, what was it? One of the other states, maybe it was Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, don't quote me on that, but it was, I personally witnessed, um, I was not given a presidential straw poll uh, um, ballot. So um, whether that was inadvertent, you know, because I was thinking, well, how would they know who not to give it to? And someone else was like, well, they don't need to know who not to give it to. They just need to know who to give it to. So they give it to their friends. And that, by definition, leaves out their non-friends, right? So I don't know. I don't want to go too far down that road. Like, I don't think that explains it all. I think the institutional observations explain, like, most of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But between all of that, um, it kind of goes into, like, a broader narrative about some systemic practices on the LNC itself that are really problematic. Like, we're starting to see... Um, an entrenched power elite manipulating things in the in the ways that are so familiar to other institutions of control. And that's what, to me, makes it not so far-fetched that party officials would participate in, you know, controlling who gets a ballot, for instance. Like, mm-hmm. that isn't actually, like, tinfoil hat at all. That is, like, a standard practice for um, yeah. people who are trying to maintain control. So, mm-hmm. um there's all of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I wanted to ask you about uh, polls, because all I could find was uh, data for 2018, not this current election. So um, uh, that's uh, uh, all I could find. So I thought I'd ask you about that. Um, so, uh, oh, uh, the next question I, I have is, um, do you have any uh, previous experience running for public office or is this the, your first time? This is my first time running for a public office. Okay. Well, well here, I'll be clear, um, because if you Google my name, you will see that I was a paper candidate for um, Congress in like 20, I think it would have been probably 2016, I believe. Okay. Um, my state party ran a, um, we had a ballot access issue where they basically made it so it was impossible for us to even get on the ballot. So we mm-hmm. ran a kind of desperate write-in campaign, and the idea was to try to get libertarians to write our names in on the ballot because it would have allowed us to bypass the petitioning requirements. And I was on the ballot as a congressional candidate. Oh. Um, so I suppose it's not technically my first, but I didn't even like I don't really like support the idea of paper candidates because I feel like if you're going to do something, you should throw yourself completely into it. So I don't really count that, but technically it existed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely, uh, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, it, it's something that, yeah, I completely agree. You, you shouldn't really half ass that stuff, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree. So, um, uh, what would you say, 
uh, is like, uh, like what, what, what is the purpose? Why exactly, uh, are you running to be, uh, LNC chair? Well, the number one reason is I genuinely believe that uh, it would be a better libertarian party if one, a libertarian socialist or one of our left libertarian allies um, gave took the chance to give the party kind of a new um, to make a new impression with the public. Um, I happen to have a, a decent amount of experience and I founded or co-founded a series of caucuses in this party that have been kind of at the leading edge of that transformation. So um, I, you know, I don't think of the world in terms of hierarchy, so I'm uncomfortable saying like, I'm the best person. Right. Right. But what I can say is that there's a lot of experience gained from operating in, um, horizontal spaces. And there's like a way of looking at, um, the way we share responsibility and the way everybody's voice has value and kind of balancing that with, um, the responsibility that goes with being considered a leader, right? Um, And there's a paradox there because you are like simultaneously, there's a responsibility to kind of apply some like visionary thinking, Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time to not really like get bossy or pushy or controlling about whether that vision looks exactly the way, um, you know, once you give that vision, I guess, over to um, the body, like it might not look exactly how you think because um, now it's in the hands of a horizontal group of people who all have their own ideas and all of their ideas are like sometimes even better. Like it, you really have to like tone down the human instinct to be a control freak yeah. and balance that with the desire to like give other people their power back, right? Yeah. And that is a refined skill. Like it's... Um, you know, it doesn't just come from the corporate world, right? Yeah. You have to learn that, right? And I've been able to do that over the years. So um, I wanted to bring that experience. And um, mm-hmm. the final reason probably is that the mainstream political system is continuing to consolidate power. We've already seen a rise of right-wing populism, and now we're seeing a surge of left-wing populism. And both of those types of populist movements are actually toxic to human liberty and they're moving Uh, society in the wrong direction yeah i would actually yeah it's interesting because i I, i've heard people describe uh left-wing populism and to me like if we're talking about uh the actual like people who are actually on the left and actually populist i would say that that's more people like you and me than people like bernie or howie hawkins which are just you know bourgeois sellouts anyway so it's like it just doesn't really uh so so like the the whole left-wing populism thing i think it's an interesting phenomenon but i think it's kind of a misnomer when you're talking about people like uh, again like bernie sanders and aoc and people like that Uh, i think it should be applied more to people like you and me i don't know if you agree with that or not it's just an interesting thought that i had no sure that's fair enough and yeah to be clear um I guess populism, let's see, there is some some nuance here, right? Because basically pandering to um, people's anxieties and their fears um, often gets labeled populism just to like, and so maybe even the right-wing type that I'm describing is also that kind of false populism where really they're just generating an emotional reaction among as many people as possible um, for political gain. But like, 
if you think of it maybe in the principled sense, and yes, I have thought down this, like, so I do agree with you. Um, the bottom unity movement in itself is about like giving libertarians, like, like centering the populist, I guess, message or like this power to the people idea on the individual, on people themselves. Yeah. Like, no, your power belongs to you. Yes. And you get to decide, you know. Yes. What's best for you, and when you work with other people, you get to decide together how best to accomplish that goal. And like that, I think would be maybe the true spirit. So, in that sense, the bottom unity movement is like a libertarian populist. Yeah, movement. yeah, that that would be a good way to describe it. Yeah, it was like a libertarian populist thing. Yeah, that that that's a great uh, way of uh, describing it. Um, let's see. Um, Oh, um, uh, could you bring a, uh, could you, uh, just outline for, uh, people that don't know, uh, who you are or, or don't know, uh, your philosophy or what you're planning on bringing to the table? Uh, can you give a basic rundown of your platform? Like what you're planning to bring to the LNC, uh, for this position, just a, a basic rundown of, you know, specific policy proposals you may have or general philosophy, whatever. Well, thanks. I'm glad you asked. So one of the really um, great opportunities I see for us to kind of blaze a way forward is to um, shift over to using digital tools to accomplish more things. Mm -hmm. um, so these um, physical conventions that we've been doing, they're very old technology. And um, because it's so costly to travel and, you know, get a hotel it kind of creates barriers of participation for low income and working class people. Mm -hmm. um, or even if they can afford to travel, there may be, you know, issues with taking the time off of work or whether vacation time is available or they need it for something else, you know? So um, what that has done is it has created a party um, where people who are relatively privileged are making um, the party decisions and, and also um, we're just wasting time and money to do this. Um, and mm -hmm. this problem is even more exacerbated on the national committee itself um, because they travel and they have these quarterly um, in-person meetings. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's traveling once every two years to a national convention is a burden for many how much more of a burden is it to travel four times a year every year to sit on the committee. And so, Mm -hmm. What we see is the people on that national committee, um, by and large, are people who, um, you know, they are probably business owners in many cases, or they just have really high-paying white-collar jobs. Um, depending on the class theory you're going by, maybe even consider, quote, ruling class because they do control means of production. Mm -hmm. Although, to be clear, even the top 1% in the LP is, like, poor compared to, like, the actual 1%. So mm -hmm. don't get it twisted. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. Know. But with that said, um, their interests are different, and the way they view the world is different, and they're kind of out of touch with um, the needs of ordinary working class people. So um, one is using digital tools to overcome that, right? There's no reason the LNC can't meet on Zoom. There's only 20 of them, mm -hmm. and the grassroots of this party have been you know, doing this for years and accomplishing really amazing things by using digital meetings, and there's really no reason we couldn't have, like, say, a membership app, like, where your credentials are just in there, and if your membership is validated, you can, like participate in real time in the decisions like so in other words it would democratize things now 
granted that would take you know some bylaws changes and things that are beyond the scope of the chair um but um it kind of circles back to that you know um the role of a leader in a bottom-up or horizontal space is really to like introduce visionary ideas and then kind of pep talk everybody um into like accomplishing them together right so like i think that's a grand really cool idea that would change this party and like honestly if we can pioneer what that looks like um to have like a citizenship app even like how would it change u.s politics if we didn't need congress anymore because you could just log into your app and like vote on the next bill you know what i mean oh yeah that's a great idea yeah that would be so cool yeah and it would decentralize it would solve so many problems with corruption um you know, we don't need to be stuck with this technology that was invented in the late 18th century. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to question that the Constitution was a leap forward in its time. Um, but <laughs> um, it, it, it's no longer a leap forward. Like, holding yeah. on to it is now, like, a step backwards. So yep. there's also that. So that's kind of, like, at the center of a lot of my narrative is that, like, rather than turning it into this blame narrative where it's all about the corruption and these, you know, these rich people that want to, like, impose their rules on us, like, yeah, that analysis exists, right? Mm-hmm. But the solution, I think, is to just lean into technology. Like, mm-hmm. um, we have the tools now to overcome that in a way that benefits everybody. Like, I guess I would apply, like, a restorative narrative or a transformative narrative to that. Like, everybody's voice has value. And we just need to set our uh, party up to make sure that it's honoring the spirit of that. Yeah, yeah, I, that definitely uh, makes a lot of sense. And you actually brought up something that I just, you know, I, I haven't really realized before, but you actually opened my eyes to it, that I think uh, people like me uh, tend to focus too much on the uh, the other aspect of that, which you talked about, which is the uh, all these rich people are screwing us and blah, 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 and we don't spend enough time thinking about the ways to use technology to our, our advantage to kind of uh, mitigate uh, that uh, those um, conditions. So I think, um, so I, I think that that's a great, uh, a great way of thinking uh, on your part and something that I will definitely look into uh, in the future. Cause I'm definitely one of those people that you talked about that's on the other side of that equation where I tend to think too much about the other stuff and not, as much on the uh, how to utilize technology to to fight those people kind of side of things. So cool, Yay. yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. Um, also, uh, this is something that I was reading uh, on your uh, Facebook page. Which for people that don't know, uh, I would encourage you to like Mike Shipley for LNC Chair on Facebook. It has. Uh, 3,520 followers, 3,300 likes. Uh, that's an amazing achievement as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, on your page, uh, you talked about uh, a few weeks ago, I think, or no, no, not even a few weeks ago. It was um, actually just a, uh, about five days ago, actually. Uh, you were talking about uh, you said, quote, many survivors of homelessness and addiction are small business owners due to workplace discrimination of felons. Guess who's being uh, discriminated uh, or, or excluded from the Paycheck Protection Program? I was just wondering, do you have any specific thoughts on uh, what the LNC should do in response to that? Like what the LNC 
the the uh, sorry the LP response uh, to the Paycheck Protection Program should be like? Do you have uh, a plan in place to counter the uh, Paycheck Protection Program? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, zooming out a little bit, the reason why I've been kind of making a point of showing on my page what a kind of left libertarian critique of the command economy would look like mm-hmm. is because I know that many libertarians who are self-identified as right-leaning or capitalist um, – they are very, very accustomed to hearing um, those critiques in the vocabulary of sort of right-wing economics, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll hear them glorifying kind of the figure of the entrepreneur, um, but what would be missing is the way that felons, for instance, are disenfranchised or the way that um, people escaping the the pain of, of wage um, wage slavery or whatever you want to call it, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, experience higher rates of addiction and other forms of escape. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there's a cycle of, of poverty and, and, and the entrenched, like the systemic poverty isn't just purely about like not having the bootstraps to be an entrepreneur. Right. Like there's a, right. a, a giant, like missing space there. Right. Um, so the reality for like the LNC is that, um, it's a bottom-up party. We don't really control the narratives of our candidates themselves. Like even the even the presidential ones, we have the party platform, and that's about it. Okay. So the plan, in terms of like, if you can call it a plan, is to just show libertarians what that missing space looks like, like illuminate where that missing critique is, and hopefully they'll see why that's such a valuable addition to the narrative and and hopefully candidates will be like wow i'm running in a blue district that narrative would really resonate with my voters Mm. and um hopefully that would like cause a kind of growth spurt or like a level up like i'm not even saying that like let's see this is kind of hard to say this in it with like i don't want to let's see inadvertently like affirm right-wing capitalist economic think tanks who have like really um flooded libertarian spaces with um propaganda and um the way our candidates are kind of repeating talking points that are actually like corporate favoritism without noticing it um so there's definitely that but with all that said most like actual grassroots libertarians even who identify as right-leaning um uh, they're coming from a place of like genuinely recognizing that the system is making their lives worse right Right. so what i want to give some kind of dignity to is the idea that like they're doing their best they're doing the best with the knowledge that they have um and so they're not really like quote wrong per se Mm -hmm. they just could really benefit from (laughs) a lot more analysis and a lot more critique right so um that is like quote part of my plan not even quote i don't know why i said quote there anyway part that's like really the main plan is to like just be in a position where people are actually like the chair doesn't have much power but they have influence in the sense that everyone pays attention to what they say because it's assumed that the chair is like a powerful position yeah yeah 
That's um, probably what I should have started off asking you because honestly, uh, full disclosure for my listeners, I don't know anything about uh, like the position of LNC chair, for instance. So uh, that would actually be uh, a good um, uh, a good thing to ask you about, though. Is is uh, uh, for people that don't know, like me, uh, would you mind educating us on what, what exactly are the responsibilities of the LNC chair? So mostly their job is to facilitate that quarterly meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, conduct it according to Robert's rules of order and, yep. and keep, keep everything structured. Um, and the same goes for that, that national convention every two years. Um, and they also, I don't know if supervise is the right word. I suppose technically it is. Um, the chair on paper is the uh, CEO of the of the business entity that is the um, that operates the headquarters staff and you know pays their wages and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there's an executive director in the office as well. So, um, I suppose the like the top down way of looking at that, and this is actually like something that I see as. Um, kind of a danger right now is that the party is mostly populated by people who think in, in terms of capitalism. So mm-hmm. um, when they hear, oh, the CEO of the business entity, they assume that that person is going to exhibit, you know, boss-like characteristics. Um, yeah. But the reality is um, this is a bottom-up party mm-hmm. and the, the, uh, the priorities are set by the members through their delegates and through the LNC members that they elect, their regional representatives and their at-large representatives. Mm-hmm. So like a genuine like place of servant leadership for me would look like um, it's my job to kind of pass through what those priorities are. So like give the power back to the membership. And I realize I'm, you just asked what their job is and I'm giving you like a giant like dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) How I would do it differently. Um, You know, um, yeah, that's what the, the, so uh, that's the answer. The chair facilitates those meetings and in theory, they're like trying to harvest like an authentic, like bottom up, like as much, as many voices participating in those decisions and then turn towards the headquarters staff and kind of implement it through the structure that exists there. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that uh, makes perfect sense, actually. Um, I think I got um, everything. Oh, uh, the uh, last uh, thing I have for you is um, just um, any final messages or thoughts you want to uh, to send out to my lovely listeners. Um, any uh, just, you know, this is just a... Uh, 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 an opportunity for you to free form. I, I, I won't ask you anything. I just uh, want to know if you have any, uh, any just parting words for uh, the folks out there. I would probably offer, and I call this like a pep talk. It's just, I want to infuse you with kind of hope and also maybe a sense of urgency, right? Because mm-hmm. there has been a catch 22 and I want to, I might even frame this in terms of anti-fascism, right? Because mm-hmm. um, the development of a Trump presidency has been very disturbing and it has revealed something about the American population that is not very flattering mm-hmm. um, and is kind of scary. So the reality is we now see with Joe Biden arising on the left that um, the quote electoral left anyway, um, is that um, they don't aren't really equipped to really um, handle that 
problem by moving any farther away than like one inch to the left, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so the Libertarian Party is the next most obvious choice. We are the third largest party and we have ballot access in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. And um, it would be easiest for us to become that um, sort of challenge to the status quo. Mm-hmm. So my question to the listeners is, do you want that Libertarian Party to look like it's a right-wing Koch brothers form? Or do you want it to be a more authentic, broad-based Libertarian movement that is informed by left Libertarian and Libertarian socialist ideas? If you want that, then we really would welcome your involvement because the reality with electoral politics, and I get it, Anarchists don't normally do electoral politics. And to be clear, uh, statism is never going to set us free. Like, I fully acknowledge that. But for it to function as harm reduction, even just to function as harm reduction, um, we really need your support. This is not coming up as a pep talk. This is more like me begging. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. Um, we don't have the numbers to elect a left libertarian national chair right now. That means we need more of you. So please, please, if you're out there, you're skeptical, you're thinking, why in the heck would I want to get my hands dirty with this? Reach out to the libertarian socialist caucus, um, reach out to me, um, or others. Um, and um get your questions asked and like if you have the patience for it um then please get involved because we really 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 need you yeah yeah um that actually uh brings up i i guess i have one more question for you because i uh you've been very generous uh with your time and i don't want to take up too much more of it but um um I, I i that does does bring up an interesting uh question uh what do you think about the whole there i've seen this uh, uh, mostly on YouTube, like certain commentators that are nominally on the left shaming people for not wanting to vote for Biden. And I'm absolutely sick of it. I'm, I'm, it's like I'm voting for Vermin and it's like that's not that doesn't mean I, I, I want to vote for Trump. Like I hate that argument of, well, if you're not going to vote for Biden, that means you're uh, de facto giving a vote. Uh, to Trump, it's like no, you're not. You know, it's, it's like I want to vote for vermin. I'm not voting against Trump. I'm voting for vermin. Yeah, or against right. Biden or whatever. So it's like, so right. I just wanted to get your thoughts on on that specific issue on people that nominally uh, and normally would agree with us. Uh, they're so scared of Trump that they pull this shit where it's like, well, if you don't vote for Biden. Uh, then you're just throwing your vote away and uh, handing it over to Trump. Uh, what do you say to those people? Sure. So I would first stop and pause and just take a step back because, um, and let me start, I guess, by legitimizing. Um, it is very fair to say that Trump is incredibly dangerous. His, um, his penchant for getting on Twitter and saying like blatantly racist things, um, you know, stirring up violence towards the media, um, you know, the, the sharp rise in hate crimes, um, just the way that he has pandered to um, a really gross sort of underbelly. Like, that is real, right? Mm-hmm. And he may not be um, sort of, I suppose, talented enough to really um, leverage the structure that he's emerging from that, um, uh-huh. but it's possible for a demagogue to arise in his wake that will know. Right. Um, 
But I caution you when recognizing the violence of that system and the, and the great system of violence that exists to um, sort of be deployed in service of that. Um, that system was built by neoliberals, by yes. decades of neoliberal rule. And I caution you against the idea that Biden can even meaningfully be thought of as less violent or less harmful. And in some ways, maybe even insidiously more so because they put a sort of familiar, respectable face back on that violence. Yes, that's my uh, re- uh, response to those people a- as well, because I'm like, yeah, Trump's done a lot of bad things in three years, but Joe Biden has been in government for half a century. He has way more blood on his hands and way more corpses in his backyard than Donald Trump could ever have the intelligence, ability, or, you know, or, um, yeah, intelligence, ability, or power to do. You know, it's like, you know, it's like Joe Biden is way more destructive overall than Trump is. There are a couple of issues where he's better, of course, but overall their impact is roughly the same you know right right and if you if the listener is maybe still skeptical of this i would point to what happened um when barack obama was supposed to be the salvation from you know the george w bush years yeah Uh, what actually happened is he escalated the drone bombings he escalated the deportation state um and overall the violence of state continued to expand so Mm -hmm. it is absolutely shown by history that putting a, a sort of slick polished and to be clear, Biden's not even slick and polished like Barack Obama. Right. <laughs> um, not anymore, but, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it serves to actually entrench and reinforce the existing system, and that is a bad idea. Yeah, that's why I've, I've been saying, like, I have more, I, I've been more annoyed lately with, like, liberals than outright fascists. Like, I, I'm more annoyed right now with these these scared liberals than like Nazis and fascists because at least you know like 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 these people they're just so weak and they don't believe in anything and it and even people that are that call themselves leftists on YouTube are like oh well Biden you know is is better than Trump it's like eh not really <laughs> so it's like right. I'm, I'm more annoyed with like the the lib cucks than the, than the fascists at this point <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's real. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for your time, Mike. And uh, I'm sure uh, you and I will be uh, talking again soon uh, in the future. And uh, I'd love to have you on again, uh, maybe uh, just before election day or uh, I mean, we'll work all this stuff out privately. But uh, but I definitely like to have you on again, because I think this was a really, really good and uh, productive conversation. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it.